Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. In just a little bit, you're going to get to hear Madhari Vijay read from her debut novel, The Far Field. This is part two, so if you haven't listened to part one, give it a listen and meet us back here. She will be accompanied by an original Storybound remix. Let's start the show. I was six years old the first time Bashir Ahmed came. And I still remember it. How my mother had not ceased moving, even for a second, all that week. How she had decided the previous morning that her lantana bushes were sick, somehow infected, and had spent three hours pulling them up, only to abruptly abandon them leaving the garden looking like a war zone. (laughs) How she had surges of intense laughter at nothing. How she cooked a pile of vessels growing dangerously high in the sink, but how, at the same time, she claimed never to be hungry. How she seemed to have endless energy for play, devising elaborate games that soon wore me out, but left her unaffected. (laughs) When the bell rang that afternoon, I was in the living room. I moved to answer, but all of a sudden, she was behind me, her hand gripping my shoulder hard. With her other hand, she threw the door open. And there he was, a tall, dark-haired man wearing a green kurta and a white skull cap, carrying over his shoulder a distended yellow bundle twice the width of his torso. His thick hair fell over his forehead, which was the color of rosewood, but his eyes were a light, stunning green. For a second, he stood there, perhaps wondering about the wrecked garden. Then, in a deep, resonant voice that would soon become as recognizable to me as my own, he said to my mother in formal Urdu, Madam, would you wish to buy these beautiful clothes from Kashmir? Sure, my mother said, not missing a beat. But if I do, what will you wear? The stranger laughed, unhesitating, glad, as though he had not only been expecting her humor, but had traveled a long way just to hear it. My mother's grip on my shoulder tightened, though I couldn't tell whether it upset or pleased her. She was used to people being discomfited by the things she said. This laughter was something new. Come in, she said, in a slightly milder tone. Let me see what you have. 
The music you're hearing in this episode was sampled from the song Emerald Shores by Elit. And now for a short commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Madhari Vijay. And now we return from our break. I was six years old the first time Bashir Ahmed came. And I still remember it. And here I must ask the unavoidable question. Why him? Of all the people who came to our house over the years to sell, to work, to visit, why should he have been the one she fixed her mind upon? It had to do with her mood that day, of course. The glittering in her eyes that had been there all week, but what else? The fact that he was handsome, in a style utterly foreign to our dark-skinned southern city, Those green eyes, which I'd never seen before, except on TV. Had these things been enough, at least to start with? He stepped inside with a ceremonial satisfaction, which I would come to think of as his trademark, as if our house were a dazzling place he'd been told of long ago. He hauled the bundle into our living room and tugged it open with an elegant motion. And there were clothes everywhere, spreading like a bright, choppy sea. My mother took a seat on the sofa across from him. I sat in between them. I did not know it then, but these would become our fixed places, our fixed roles. Bashir Ahmed speaking, my mother listening, and me watching them both. He was riffling through the clothes, speaking rapidly in Urdu, a speech he'd obviously given many times before. Six months for one piece and everything is handmade by our women in their villages. What shall I show you first, madam? You tell me. Kurtas, shawls, saris, everything is guaranteed 100% pure Kashmir. 100% pure Kashmir. pure Kashmiri, she echoed in a tone that could have just as easily been mockery as admiration. Then she waved her hand. All of it. Show me all of it. He began with the shawls. Ruby with pink paisley. White with mint paisley. Each edged by a row of soft tassels sinking one after the other in soft layers across his lap. It was a performance, practiced until flawless. The whole time he did not stop talking, his green eyes moving between my mother's face and the shawls. My mother watched their soundless descent, rapt, and even I, with my tomboy's revulsion for all things feminine, had to admit they were beautiful. When he had shown her all the shawls, she blinked. Anything else? 
He launched into the same routine with the kurtas, all of which had panels of delicate embroidery down the front. This time, he looked deeper into her face and spoke in a lower, more confidential voice. But she remained still, except for her eyes, which stayed riveted to the rise and fall of his hands, as though they might contain some vital code. When he came to the end of the kurtas, he started in with the saris, translucent, jewel-toned chiffon with chain-stitched pansies along the borders. And when those two were rejected, he sat back on his heels, surveying the disorder around him, biting his lip, trying to hide his exasperation. Hmm, my mother murmured. Now where are those beautiful clothes I was told about? His frown vanished in an instant. Madam, he said, shaking his head sorrowfully. I must be honest with you. I am feeling very bad right now. If I had known about you before coming here, I would have brought my friend with me. She smiled. Your friend? Yes, my friend. He sells spectacles, you see. Maybe with the right pair you would have been able to see my clothes properly and you wouldn't have embarrassed yourself like this. I'd never heard anybody speak this way to my mother with such liberty, such daring. She stared at him a moment, then threw her head back and laughed and laughed. I imagined he would shrink at that wild, uncontrolled sound, but he didn't. He just looked at her, with his head tilted to one side, smiling. Then, as if he'd suddenly remembered, he turned his large head to me. What about Beatty here? He asked. Shall I show something for Beatty? Yes, my mother said, before I could speak. The man dug around in the pile and came up with a white cotton blouse, sprays of delicate pink roses edging the neckline and both sleeves. He shook it out, then held it up to his own chest without a trace of self-consciousness. It is so beautiful, he declared. It even looks good on an ugly fool like me. It sounds strange, but he was right. Not that he was ugly or a fool, he wasn't either. But he did look beautiful in that girl's blouse, with his dark hair falling over his forehead and his weathered throat rising so naturally from the pale, flimsy material. I glanced at my mother to find a strange expression on her face, a grimace that seemed to indicate physical pain. Shalini, she said, and if nothing until then had made me sit up and take notice, that would have. She almost never used my name. What do you think? Do you like it? And even though the blouse was nothing, I would have dreamed of choosing for myself. I nodded. It seemed like the only thing to do. Some aspect of her mood had communicated itself to me, but more than that, I had sensed an unfamiliar thing in the room, a flash of new color for which I had no name. I was rewarded when she reached out and squeezed my hand. 
seems like we'll be taking it, she said. It makes me very happy to know that at least one of you isn't blind. And then he, too, smiled at me. I flushed under the weight of their combined attention. One set of eyes green, the other deepest brown. The tall man coughed discreetly into his fist and named a price. And oddly enough, my mother, who ordinarily never lost a chance to haggle, agreed. He smiled, a figure of modest triumph, and began to pack up his wares. For a few seconds, she stared at his hands, which were busy folding and smoothing. And then she said in a rush, When will you come back? He glanced up, startled. He raked his hair back with his fingers, nudging the skullcap askew. Ah, I'm not sure. I think I'm expecting some new items in two or three months. He glanced quickly at her. Should I... What I mean is, do you want me to? He broke off, because she had started to scowl. I braced myself. Now, I thought. Now she will destroy him. Now she will cut him down. But to my surprise, all she said was, yes. The music you're hearing in this episode was sampled from Weston Zander, Sarah the Instrumentalist, and Heath Cantu. And now for a quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Madhari Vijay. And now we return for our final chapter. Every March, when I was a child, my father took precisely five days off from the factory and the three of us went on a holiday to a resort. It didn't much matter where. The point I see now was the ritual. Like so many Indians scaling the middle-class ladder in the early 90s, my father believed it was an annual comfort owed to us, like regular electricity or tax breaks. There was always a clubhouse of sorts on the premises, a swimming pool, a table tennis room, a library filled with dog-eared reader's digests, and a wood-paneled card room where men gathered in the evenings to play gin rummy. My mother never failed to mock these places and their occupants, especially the spoiled, noisy children, whom she called resort rats, and whom I thereafter avoided. As if to counter her cynicism, my father became doubly enthusiastic about everything. He was up at dawn for long walks around the golf course. He was ready to drive an hour to see a waterfall, even in the dry season. He was a regular at the gin rummy evenings. And I understand it, or at least I think I do. 
a man with his education and his experience of the world, with the income he was making, with a three-bedroom house and no great tragedy in his past, what else could he have done but celebrate his success with others like us? I think now that for him, there might even have been something of the sacred in the whole thing. He rejected my mother's idols and prayers, but he constructed his own system of worship that was no less rigorous. All year he toiled for the sake of those five days in March, and it was both reward and punishment, for it took him away from the work he loved so much and landed him in a world with my mother, who could be joyous one minute and vicious the next, so that when he returned to the factory, it was with an air of distinct relief and the washed soul of a penitent. Bashirama had been gone perhaps a month when the three of us went to Kerala to a resort beside Lake Vembanad. Thousands of water hyacinths floated on the choppy brown surface, a living green carpet. My mother, who was in one of her irascible moods, dragged a chair onto the little pier and sat there watching them. I hung about her, dangling my legs off the warm wood letting my toes skim the water until she looked down and said, You know what I hate, Shalini. It's when you just sit there at my feet, like a sad little mouse waiting for me to do something to entertain you. For God's sake, can't you leave me alone for once in your life? Deeply wounded, I went and found my father, who seemed surprised and flattered at my sudden appearance. He and I spent the next few hours exploring the resort, finding in the process a stinking wire cage that housed a single rabbit whom we named Garfunkel, and a badminton court with a sagging net where we played until it was time to wash up for dinner. I ostentatiously ignored my mother throughout the meal, not even smiling when, in a poor attempt to win me back, she spoke to our waiter in an exaggerated Dracula accent which caused the poor man so much consternation, I thought I saw tears in his eyes. And after dinner, I curled up beside my father to watch TV in our room. My mother noticed this but said nothing, instead disappearing for over an hour. She often went off like this, usually to find the nearest temple, so neither my father nor I worried too much about her. When she came back, she was smiling to herself. That night, I was shaken awake in darkness. My mother stood over me, fully dressed. Get up, she said. I asked no questions. The old excitement had ignited in my belly as soon as I heard her voice, and I did not think of refusing. Anger forgotten, I scrambled out of bed. What were rabbits and silly games compared with this covert nighttime operation? I found my shoes and followed her out to the gate of the resort. The security guard was asleep in his little cabin, 
left hand tenderly cupping his crotch. From the dregs of pink in the sky, I guessed it was nearly morning. We walked along a wet, narrow street, canals cut deep into both sides, wide enough for little wooden boats. Wooden bridges led to brightly painted houses. At one of the bridges, a small boy in shorts was waiting. He led us across to a mud courtyard at the back of the house, and I gasped. Tied to a stake in the corner, half asleep on its feet, was a baby elephant. The boy pointed to a bucket with a mug bobbing in it. I think, my mother murmured, you're supposed to give it a bath. I clutched her hand, grateful enough to be mute, and stumbled forward. The little creature was trusting. As soon as I got close, it bumped its forehead against the front of my shirt and nuzzled. With trembling hands, I poured a mug of warm water over its back, and it squeaked with pleasure. For the next 30 minutes, I forgot everything else. When all the water was gone, I went to my mother and wrapped my wet arms about her, a wordless apology. She bore my hug with a pained smile, and then she brought her lips down to my ear. We have fun together, don't we, little beast? Yes, I whispered. I was starting to shiver, my lips painfully cold. Tell me, do you have fun like this with anyone else? I looked up at her face. No, I said. Nobody else. Good, she said, straightening up, and paid the little boy with a fistful of coins. My father was still asleep when we got back to the resort. I changed into my pajamas, hung my wet clothes out to dry, and climbed, trembling and exultant, into bed. Needless to say, I never mentioned the incident to my father. She wanted to prove to me, I think, that I was bound to her, as if I'd ever doubted it. Though now I think it must also have been her way of testing me preparing me, a handful of minor secrets to pave the way for the final one. Thank you to Madhari Vijay for reading. Go buy yourselves a copy of her debut novel, The Far Field, at your local bookseller. Thank you to Chris Plotnick from Grace Recording Studio in Maui, John Mark Boring from Grove Atlantic, and Epidemic Sound. Production assistance is provided by Jordan Aaron, and our mixing engineer is Tim Carplus. Storybound is arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. We are hard at work on season four, but we've got a couple more bonus episodes coming up. And if you're subscribed to the show, 
well, you'll automatically get updated when new episodes arrive. But if you're not subscribed, please do. Follow us on Twitter or on Instagram at StoryBoundPod. Let us know what you think of the show. Otherwise, we will see you next episode. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.